Well, hello, friends. Welcome to another exciting, amazing, incredible episode of the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. Um, this is the second episode in our clobber series. It's clobber time. <laughs> Thank you, Derek. Um, so, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm going to do some introductions real quick before we jump in. Uh, my name is Keith Giles. I, as I said, uh, I am the author of several books in the uh, Jesus Un series, the most recent one being Jesus Unexpected, Ending the End Times to Become the Second Coming with a forward by Baxter Kruger, uh, available wherever fine books are sold. And I am joined by my amazing co-host. Uh, hey, everyone, introduce yourselves and say howdy. Howdy. I'm Katie Valentine. I'm so happy about this topic today uh, and the way we're going to approach it. And I am a co-editor of a forthcoming volume called Trans Biblical, where we're talking about transgender identity and biblical interpretation. So a little something to look forward to related to the topic today. And I am Derek Dave, author of Deconstructing Religion, the founder and chief talent of the Forward Podcast, Shameless Plug, and the author of several upcoming books to be announced. And I and I'm Matt DiStefano. I've got uh, I've got an announcement, guys. I have a booklet coming out tomorrow, and to quote Keith Giles, it is worth every penny. So it is the fourth installment of the Bonfire Sessions. It's the winter installment. It is out tomorrow. So you can go to uh, you can go to Amazon and pick that up for only 99 cents on Kindle. And then in April, on April 20th, 420, y'all, um, the paperback edition of all four sessions with a forward by your man, Derek Day. It's going to be out. So excited for that and excited for, uh, I guess, episode two of this series. Matt, I have a question. I have an answer. For the Bonfire series, are you stopping at four? Is it going to go, are we going to have, you know, summer 2021? Oh, well, we're going to take a year off and use that time to write. But then, yes, we are. Thank you for asking, Katie. We are going to, uh, there's going to be three series in a in a row so there's gonna be like 12 booklets and four parts in each series and then after like three or four years there's gonna be a three volume series and uh we'll see what we write about i don't even know taking over the world i love it taking over the world one dollar one dollar at a time and 199 cent copy at a time yeah (laughs) that's right and if you want to contact the heretic happy hour posse you could do so by exercising finger dexterity and dialing 240-343-7379. Once again, 240-343-7379. And we have a voicemail. So roll that beautiful voicemail footage. Hi, guys. I was in uh, a class today, and I heard that on average our current generation has been shown empirically to be about 30% more narcissistic than, you know, previous generations. And that compelled me to ask, number one, how can we grow in, you know, in the care and concern of others? But number two, experientially, I've learned that constantly focusing on, I want to do better, I want to do better, I want to care for others, that doesn't always lead to the most genuine, flowing um, expression of mutuality of care and concern, especially without, you know, psychological issues. So my question is, how can we grow in that in the most genuine way that's going to be helpful for, I guess you could say, our human family, if you want to use that construct? And uh, thank you for your for your um, thoughts. Thanks. Yeah, interesting. Uh, well, first of all, wait. yeah, thank you. What generation? What generation is she? Ta- is the caller talking about? I wonder. Yeah, my, my 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 initial thought was, what's the source? What's the study? Who are we talking about? And 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 the methodology of the study? And and are are we using narcissistic uh, colloquially or like people diagnosed narcissistic personality disorder or something? Yeah, I was wondering, how do you quantify narcissism? Well, I think there's a DSM um, diagnosis that 
uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm, I'm not a psychologist. Um, <laughs> I think you can be diagnosed as that, but we also use it colloquially, like in our, you know, common, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I was taking that as a colloquial, you know, yeah. narcissistic. Right. Behavior. So then therefore, what's the study all about? So I'm, I'm curious about the question. And I also, I have an immediate kind of response where sometimes when people start to take care of themselves and and set boundaries, they're called narcissistic, Mm. when in reality, they're setting good boundaries. So I wonder if this is also, you know, if if this is also like, you're not doing what I want you to do, therefore, you're narcissistic. And women at mid age get this a lot, right? Women at mid age will be like, yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm not taking care of all your, you know, so called needs anymore. You all go wash your own dishes. I'm I'm doing my own thing. And then they get called selfish. Sure. So I don't know. I'm like, I, I, I'm a big believer in, in, uh, in giving, you know, as society is being giving and us being Christ-like and all that. So I'm, I'm just kind of, I'm kind of curious. I think one thing is that, you know, society is rebelling against religion. And, and when, when they do that, people that are, that measure their life by religion, they see it as something narcissistic. They see it as something, uh, you know, counterproductive. And, and I don't know. Um, I just, um, I'm, I'm kind of curious as to what is the, what is the driver for the question? Hmm. I, I'm, I'm cons- I, I, I really like to understand the why of the question. Well, um, since, I mean, I, I don't know, I, I guess the way I heard it, the question was, how can I, how can we not be so self-centered and narcissistic, uh, just in general, like what, what's some advice that we could give for some, for either our listeners or maybe even the caller in general, like how, how can we be more thoughtful about other people rather than like, we, in other words, if we don't want to fall into that category, we don't want to become narcissistic or if we want to see our society not be a narcissistic uh, society, how can we do that? And so, I mean, my, I guess, and in general, I guess my advice would be from the spiritual side of things, we have a, a very rich tradition of, you know, like the the desert fathers and the desert mothers and, um, some of the mystics that we have that encourage us to do some inner work and by doing so recognize, which is kind of funny, it's inner work, but it's not narcissistic because the the fruit of that inner work that you do uh, in meditation and silence and reflection, uh, what it actually leads you to is to recognize that you are connected to God and the divine and therefore connected to everyone else. Um, and so uh, the fruit of that ends up being something where we recognize that um, we are connected, and by and, and really, it's even in, in some ways, in a weird way, it's even in our self, selfish self-interest to help others and serve others and bless others. Because when you help someone else, you're helping yourself. When you serve someone else, you're serving yourself. When you bless someone, right? Because we're all connected uh, to to one another through the divine and our connection with the divine. So that's just my general thought, assuming that is what the person was asking. Well, and the, the second the second part of the question or the second part of the the the, uh, the call in um, kind of got me thinking about, you know, I want to help. I want to help or I should. What should I should be doing? Um, it kind of reminded me of Alan Watts's uh, like law of reverse effort. Sometimes we try too hard to do this and uh, and do that and help out here and, and, and there. It almost becomes a little bit self-serving. Um, it's almost like this, um, you know, this thing we can brag about on how much, how much we're doing, how much we're shooting our way through life. But really it's, it's like clearing the water. You don't, you don't mess with the, the debris. You let the, you leave things alone. We, we need to do a little bit less and reflect a little bit more and be more meditative. And, and then things will naturally kind of flow out, um, of our lives that end up, that end up being the genuine version of what we're trying to do. So in in other words, be way more Buddhist and and stop trying. <laughs> I you know I also I have this thought that I mean I can't really control what other people do if it's narcissistic if it's not narcissistic you know whatever that may be, but I can tend to my own garden, and that's really about all I can do, right? So I tend to my own self, my own spirit, my own the people that I interact with, um, have the impact that I can have, and then like hope for the best and everyone has to tend their own garden. That's all, that's really all that we can do. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm actually more hopeful. I think um, about, about humanity. 
I know all of the listeners that we interact with here are amazing and and non-narcissistic. And I know more non-narcissistic people than I do people with narcissistic tendencies. And we've all got some and um, I'm, I'm, I'm more hopeful about the future of humanity. And we're in a particularly turbulent time right now. And those turbulent times often precede the expansion. So I'm looking forward to the expansion. Yeah, well put. Well put. Uh, should we move on to uh, to our next segment, which is the Heretic of the Week? It's the Heretic of the Week. Hey, everyone. This is Jared Bias. I'm honored to be the Heretic of the Week. Hi, Hi Jared. Jared. Welcome to the show, Jared. And uh, don't don't confuse our unenthusiastic intro um, with how excited we are to talk to you on today's show. Uh, what we like to do to kick things off with our guests is ask them, why why would you come on a show called Heretic Happy Hour? And why are you a heretic in the eyes of probably some? Yeah, I was trying to think about that. You know, um, the, the first one that comes to mind is I, I accept a lot of the conclusions that come from the historical critical study of the Bible. That's the first one. Uh, that's kind of my badge of honor, I think, early on. But as it relates to these conversations I've been having lately about truth, it's uh, my tackling of this idea of absolute truth and then the corollary of what that means for the Bible and its relationship to truth. You have my heart at historical critical study of the Bible. <laughs> so uh, for our listeners, uh, flesh that out. What, what, is, what, is that, um, what is that method of approaching the Bible and um, why is it important to you? Well, it's because from a young age, I've been extremely curious um, as that kind of a, a primary personality trait of mine, which can get me into trouble. And, you know, that, and so that's what led me to that is sort of what's the best way that we have available to study the Bible. And, you know, this methodology or process, which is really um, when we talk about historical critical, it's because most scholars of the Bible would be historians. And there are certain processes by which we study texts um, that would be just like any other historical text, that, that because it's a historical text, it needs to be under that uh, rubric or under that methodology. And the challenge, of course, comes in the, in the late 18th and then 19th century, where these conclusions that these historical critical scholars are coming to are rubbing up against maybe what the religious uh, leaders of the day would have been telling us about what the Bible uh, says and how it operates. So, you know, of course, one great example of that would be source criticism and understanding that maybe behind the text that we have in the Bible would be these various sources that came together, were, were stitched together by these redactors or, or editors. Rather than being dictated by God? What are you trying to say here? Yeah, it feels like a trap, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Has this gotten you in trouble before, Jared? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. For most certainly, most certainly. I think I think our listeners would be okay with it. And I, I asked it as a trap is in a in a ironic way. Of course. Well, tell us a little bit about um about the process of how you came toward to the study of the Bible, to this. I'm really curious about what you said about truth and how you're now relating what is truth to the work you do. Is that the is that the background that you've come from? Was this a welcome change in your life? Give us a little bit of sketch about um your background. Yeah. So my background, I grew up in a small town in Texas, actually, and would have grown up, you know, I thought it was with these different traditions. I would have grown up uh, Southern Baptist and charismatic, which seemed like to be at odds. But then in the greater religious landscape, they were both fundamentalist, both evangelical uh, traditions. And then it gravitated into Presbyterianism because of kind of the intellectual side of of my faith. Um, and so, yeah, so grew up Southern Baptist, ended up going to, to Liberty University, actually, out in, in Lynchburg, Virginia, and then up to Westminster uh, Seminary is, is where I spent many a day. So that's kind of my, my background, and it's the, I, I think it's the, um, the study of the, well, okay, so I, I think I would put it this way. When it comes to this truth question and the Bible, it kept getting really confusing because I think people were using the word true and they were meaning different things by it. And this historical critical study of the Bible was putting a damper on some of the ways we use the word truth. And, uh, and so, you know, part of, of what I've been doing is trying to unpack some of these various, uh, 
you know, senses of truth. And I feel like a lot of times it was just like ships passing in the night as far as how people were using it in, in unhelpful ways. Yeah, I find a question that I get a lot. I don't know if you get this too, is um, the the question that people ask a lot is, is, is it true? And that means a literal truth. But even just lifting the veil a little with that historical critical method with other kind of methodologies can help us access maybe deeper wisdoms. Right, right. And, and even that word I found to be unhelpful, like a literal truth, because I think of literal in terms of like literal and figurative. So what do we mean by literally true? Usually we don't mean as opposed to figurative. In my tradition, we would have meant something like historically accurate. Um, and so it's just trying to figure out what that means. And yeah, coming to this idea, I kind of have three different ways of thinking about truth that I, I put uh, in the book that I have is this first one is fact truths. And that's, you know, really the result of a methodology or process for truth finding. And that's things like the scientific method and this historical critical processes and methodologies. And I, I kind of think of that as uh, what would be true if everyone were dead? So you're trying to take the human element out of it. And that's what gives us these, these facts. And then there's this other sense we use the word true to talk about meaning. And that something's meaningful to us. And it's true in the sense that it resonates to me. It speaks truth about the human condition and the human experience. And I think that's a really important thing that we don't get subsumed or lost in the idea of fact truth. But then there's this third one, and I appreciate you mentioned that, Katie, is wisdom, which is more about this embodiment. You know, where facts and meaning, they're ideas in our head that we toss around. But in our day, we've been, uh, I would say, part of our agenda or ideology behind the scenes is we privilege the intellect. Uh, we privilege kind of what we're thinking and how we think rather than how we live our lives. So I'm really interested in how do we start to talk about and capitalize that third sense of truth, which is this embodied um, experience and embodied wisdom. Yeah, and and you you mentioned your book. Um, it's it's out now, right? So it's Love Matters More, and I think that's a great title, by the way. Um, you have a you have a chapter in here. I, I think it's chapter four. Truth without love isn't true. Can you uh, can you maybe give a little uh, a little pitch on what you mean by that? Because it's a captivating title. And I, I love the direction I think you're going with it. Yeah, so it has two two senses in, in that chapter. Um, one, it, it's really heavy on, on the uh, 19th century philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who I, I lean a lot on in the book. And he talks about, um, he, he says it this way, he actually has a, a quote where he says, truth in the sense in which Christ is the truth is not a sum of statements, not a definition, but a life. The being of truth is not the direct redoubling of being in relation to thinking. No, being of truth is truth within yourself, within me, within him, that your life, my life, his life is approximately the being of the truth. So it's a life. Therefore, Christianly understood truth is obviously not to know the truth, but to be the truth. So that kind of idea, first of all, it's more this existential understanding of truth. And then that takes us back to you know, looking at how does the Bible actually use the word truth. And so, of course, being nerdy as I am, when I first started writing the book and I thought, well, this is going to be about truth, we should just go through every instance that the word we often translate as truth, either in the, the Old Testament or in the New Testament, what does it mean in those contexts? And it was surprising to me, I wasn't expecting this, but it's often relational and ethical terminology. It's almost never Truth is almost never connected to an abstract belief or doctrine or idea that we have to believe or defend. But the truth is relational, meaning faithful, faithfulness, trustworthiness, honesty. This is where that word comes into to play. So for me, truth without love isn't true, is to recognize that when biblically speaking, truth is existential. And what's the highest form of how we live our lives? The New Testament's pretty clear that the sum and substance of all the law and all that this is pointing to is love. Yeah, I love that. Um, is it, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm misunderstanding you, it's almost that orthopraxy is is more important than orthodoxy. How, how we live out our faith is more important than having the so-called correct beliefs about what we're supposed to believe as Christians. 
Exactly. Yep. That would be kind of the central message for me is that, yeah, truth is a life well lived. Well, I love that too, because that creates a foundation where our beliefs can change and they can grow and we can question, but we still have a foundation of orthopraxy of how we live our lives that can remain stable. I mean, it can also grow, but I, I just speak to so many people. I'm sure so many of our listeners can resonate with this, that like when you have a um, sort of concept of truth that's based on literalism or um, even, even an interpretation of literalism sometimes, one little, if it's like a house of cards, removing one card just brings the whole deck down. And then there's, there's no foundation there. And so if it sounds like what you're describing too is really creating a strong foundation for people to live their lives and be in this curious mode. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's a great way of putting it. That would have been very much my experience was when I started having these doubts, I started uh, about what I was taught as a kid and, and tradition. It was very destabilizing. And what I found was very helpful in the reconstruction of my faith was very concrete practices and realizing that with those concrete practices and within a community where you don't get disowned for having questions or for having curiosities, within those two things, those can really anchor a journey where you can question and you can be curious. And that, for me, is kind of the prerequisite to growth in any sense. Uh, what were some of the practices that helped you in that process? I mean, one was showing up to a church, um, which was very helpful. I rem- distinctly remember when I was going through, I was a, I was a pastor at a, a rather large church when I started having a lot of questions and doubts um, about the Bible and other things. And I s- distinctly remember standing in front of, uh, we had a smaller gathering too of about, I don't know, a few hundred, 300 people or something. And I, I s- was talking about doubts. And I, my first time I admitted to the congregation that sometimes I don't believe any of this stuff. And, um, I was able to say, but listen, one of the beautiful things about this community is I don't always have to believe because you can believe on my behalf. And that's what showing up does, is I have a community of people who can believe uh, when I don't believe, who can bear that burden um, when I can't bear it myself. And it's practical, but it's also in our beliefs. And the response from everyone was so good and gracious um, for me that it really solidified for me that, that practice of just showing up in a place uh, where we have liturgy or where we have songs or where we have these other practices. The second one for me was, um, it was at that time that we really started practicing um, other rituals and traditions at home. And my favorite of which is we we every year practice Sukkot. So we had some Jewish friends who were moving out of the area and they gave us their building materials and instructions for a sukkah. And every year in the fall, uh, we put that together. We invite people over and, and we practice that. So we have that. And then, of course, normal other, you know, uh, re- um, around the, the, the calendar, um, the liturgical calendar, we have different practices for different times of the year. And that's been a very grounding experience for us. So I'm kind of curious if, the, you know, describing your background coming from a small town in Texas through Liberty, were those really new for you? Things like the liturgy, things like ritual, like even standing in front of a community and confessing doubt and being held up. Was that a switch for you from the environment that you had been in? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And even even today, I still have that kind of small voice of like, well, the reason you want to focus on practices is there's a like the danger for me growing up. There wasn't probably anything worse you could be. I mean, maybe a step up from being an atheist would be to be a Catholic. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> and the reason for that was they don't they don't have an emotional connection and a I don't know really what it was, but it was clear to me that just going through the motions, that's what Catholics do. They just go through the motions. And that's for me what was that idea was what was tied to practice and ritual and tradition was all those people just go through the motions. Um, and so that would have been for me coming into this, that would have been my my background, I had to overcome a lot of that baggage to say, well, that's a privileging of certain ways of being in the world. Um, that's not telling the whole story. I encourage people a lot within their households to, for instance, make an altar where they can create ritual space for themselves. And so many people just like you that I've spoken with um, have this idea that like, that's not okay, that it's going to be empty gestures. And I think sometimes the voices of the prophets are running through their head too, where the prophets say, don't do rituals just to do them, but you know, you have to you have to have meaning in your heart, but they never say you shouldn't do any rituals. And um, they can be really anchoring. 
But then I think a lot of people also have the belief that actually, if you're going to do a ritual, it has to be like the pastor. It's impossible. You can't do it just yourself. It has to be someone um, someone that's paid to do that. So there's so many different layers that we have to, um, you know, for if that's supportive for you, there's so many layers there that we have to dig under in order to find what's supportive for us. Right, right. And, and it's also that balance between how do we not become, uh, how do we not become victims of our own individualism too, where it's just sort of me, it's just me and Jesus. Um, and so I can just kind of do it however I want to. And where's kind of the, where's the spiritual accountability built into that, which has been a struggle for me because I tend to want to just go out on my own and do it my own way. So you have a, the community is um, providing some of that accountability. Right. Yep. Yeah. And that's it. I, I think for a lot of our listeners too, that even the idea of finding a community that could be supportive is really terrifying. So I think it'll be really fun to hear that, um, that you've been able to find that and every, you know, if people are looking for that, it is out there, but like you've experienced, there's a lot of layers to undergo. Yeah. And you know, a lot of the work we do at the Bible for normal people is helping to create that for people. We have so many, uh, you know, of our people in our community there that there's kind of like, I'm here anonymously, please don't tell anyone from my hometown or anything uh, that, that I'm here because I have all these doubts or I'm, I'm married to a pastor and we, you know, do not see eye to eye anymore. And so that's been the most heartbreaking, but also hopeful thing I've seen is this community. People are longing for a place where they can be the, this, I think the damning part for me is what they're really wanting to do is be themselves. And they don't have a place where they can be themselves. And uh, that's that's sad for me, but hopeful in the sense that I see more of those spaces cropping up uh, more and more. And that's a good thing. So, so you mentioned the Bible for normal people. Not that we want to send all of our listeners away to yet another podcast, but let's talk about that. Um, how long you have, how long you've been doing that? And um, yeah, just talk about your show because I, 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 I like it. I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners actually are familiar with it. And um, how does that work for, for a community? Because I know we've got we've got a community too. Yeah, we don't want this to be secretive like some of the listeners. You can tell us if you listen to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Uh, yeah. So um, we've been doing it. We're in the fourth season. So we're coming up on the fifth season. We'll be uh, in February. And um, yeah, so we're, you know, our mission really is to bring the best in biblical scholarship to everyday people. So we, we try to get obscure, nerdy people to break down their wonderful insights about the Bible so that every, everyday people, average people can understand it. And um, you know, that really came from us of like, I grew up in an in a, in a area in Texas where there was Lifeway Christian bookstores and all these things, all these wonderful resources, but they were all coming from one perspective and they weren't taking into account the, what we would consider the best in biblical scholarship. So then when I go to seminary and there's these amazing insights and all of this work that's been done for the last hundred years on these biblical texts and what they mean and where they came from and just realizing it, none of that trickled down for me in my, in my upbringing, in my area. So how do we bring that from the ivory tower down to everyday people um, so that they can come to those new conclusions on their own and have those same insights. And so that's what we've been doing. And it's been uh, yeah, a blast so far. I love your guest list. A lot of people that I quote in my, uh, in my own writing. Good, good. It's, yep. I think it's important to get those voices out. And yeah, it, it, it's, it's a noble thing because, and I, I don't know if this is true of always, but we, we, the lay folks have always been about a hundred years behind on what scholars are talking about in 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 academia and so it's it's great to have someone like you someone like pete um who we've had on the show as well be able to distill really complex ideas that kind of stay stuck in scholarship a lot of times and, and be able to communicate them in such a beautiful way that you know schmucks like me can go like oh yeah that makes sense i get that i see i see that, that that's that's important to have yeah, and that is that it is difficult. You'd be you'd be amazed, or you may not be amazed. You might think it's pretty obvious that really smart people tend to have a hard time talking to average people in average language. Well, one of the things too I want to lift up about the podcast was an episode I listened to recently, recently um, with the uh, about Aboriginal voices, and so this goes beyond only historical critical method. This is really about embracing the diversity of the people of God and bringing those voices forward for uh, for everyone to be able to hear. Uh, and so I learned a lot in listening to that episode and just a lot about the context of Australian um, Australian Aboriginal Christian community as well. So it was just a fun experience. But I really appreciate bringing that liberatory voice um, to the forefront as well. I'm just curious if you have some um, some thoughts about that, may ha maybe how that relates to truth. 
Yeah, per, yeah, that's. I think it definitely has to do with truth. You know, one of the things that I think I said early on and has become a, a mantra at the podcast is, you know, all theology has an adjective, and that was something that was really important for me to understand after going to seminary and after getting all this education was the recognition, you know, in in seminary and these other places where people would say, okay, well, one of your classes is systematic theology, and then. Uh, or just theology, theology 101. And then you could, as an elective, you could take, you know, black theology or feminist theology. It's like, well, why does the white man theology get no adjective? It's just theology. Um, and so recognizing that we all come from a perspective, and there's been one perspective that has been privileged over all the others, and and why? Is there some sort of, uh, you know, is there some sort of uh, privilege that it's owed? And the answer is no. Um, and so we have to recognize that ties to truth in the sense that none of us have the absolute truth. None of us have that perspective. None of us have the God's eye view because none of us are God. And so the closer we can get to the God's eye view uh, would be re- would require all of these perspectives coming together in some big mosaic from every perspective and every culture and every different experience is another puzzle piece in that kind of grand puzzle. So we, we should change theology to white theology. Yeah, that's what I would advocate, like white male <laughs> theology 101. Yeah, I mean, that, that'd be more truthful, right? Right. That, I mean, that, that, would shake, that would shake things up a little too much, though. <laughs> <laughs> Probably so. But yeah, we had, you know, Miguel de la Torre on, Torre on there as well on the podcast, and he did a wonderful job. It was all about uh, diversity in biblical scholarship. And he did a, a really good job of just laying out that as a, as a problem. If someone, he even he as a minority, um, would have been kind of indoctrinated in this way of thinking and not even realizing that there were other voices to be heard on these things that gave a unique and fresh perspective. Yeah, and I think that, um, Matt, as you were talking about the trickle-down Kind of theology. I think that some of the some of the white male theology actually is the trickle down theology, and then it's presumed to be you know truth truth with a capital T. You know, from a particular perspective, not recognizing that it actually is from a particular perspective. Right, right, and that's I think a lot of our a lot of people are a lot of people that I speak with. I think a lot of our listeners are go, might resonate with that. Like, oh, I was taught that this was the truth, and even just the realization that this is a particular privileged interpretation of truth for, through a particular lens might be really helpful that for me at any rate that was liberating right and and I think sometimes and this goes back to some of what I I talk about in the book is if once you recognize what's been privileged as the right way to do theology or even to do church or to do Christianity and you because I know a lot of people who wouldn't fit that mold and they've been spending their whole lives you know, one thing that comes to mind, which is a little bit tied to the idea of love, was the privileging of our intellect. That somehow the most important thing about Christianity is that you can know the right things. And so, the, therefore, the people who know the most are the most spiritual. They're the most Christian. And they're the people that we put into leadership positions. And they're the people that we put in charge of things. And we tend to dismiss the people who feel things the most, who are sensitive to relationships and people and emotions. And I feel like that dismissiveness is subtle, but so profound for people who feel like they don't belong in the church or they've been silenced or they've been told they can't serve or they've been passed over for things because of the things that we have just privileged without thinking. So you're telling me that God doesn't appreciate the person with the greatest PowerPoint the most? certainly not PowerPoint. No, (laughs) no, I think, yeah, that resonates with me a lot though. Right. Like the more we can know, the more we can make a theological proof, right. The more valid it is. And yeah. And it's, um, but at the same time within evangelical culture, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of emotional expression, but not necessarily emotional intelligence. Well, that's, that's the danger of saying that you're not being emotional. And, and having a value system that devalues and dismisses emotion. And yet, as humans, we have no choice but to be emotional. So what it really means is we just are stunted in our emotional development because we don't talk about it. We don't allow it to come to the surface. And therefore, it's, it, it's left undeveloped and unshaped. And I think rather what we should do is talk about the 
importance of our emotions, not have that be something that's shameful so that we can get more emotionally mature. I love thinking of church as the space where we can develop emotional intelligence rather than the other way around. Right. Well, Jared, this has been wonderful. Um, You've mentioned the book a few times. So tell our listeners where they can pick up your book, where they can connect with you, either a website or on, on socials. Yeah, so the book is called Love Matters More, and the the subtitle is called How Fighting to Be Right Keeps Us from Loving Like Jesus. So you can pick it up wherever you pick up books. Um, my website is jaredbias.com. You can pick it up there as well. But if you're interested in learning more about you know the larger project that we do with the Bible for Normal People, you can go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com. Um, interacting with me, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all those places. Awesome. Well, but- yeah, awesome. Uh, thank you for writing that book. I can't wait to read it. Thanks for being here. And it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks so much for taking some time with me. All right. Thanks, Tim. Wow. That was great. Thank you, Jared, so much. Yes. And and thank you for uh, for being patient with us. I know we recorded that a little while ago, but Jared's book is out. Heard great things. It's fantastic. And I would encourage everyone to go pick that up. And um I hope it somehow ties in with our topic today. Jared does. It's all Bible all day. It's all all Bible all day long. So let's stay in the Bible. And we're going to shift from the the traditional clobber passages, the ones we get, uh, we see people beaten over the head with. And we're going to go to the more affirming passages because we don't want to, we don't want to leave a pile of rubble for everyone, right? We want to have something to reconstruct. So I don't know where y'all want to um, to start, but I would love to hear your thoughts on the pro-LGBTQ affirming passages. Well, I, I think that we can start with Galatians 3 and 28. There's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, but all are one in Christ Jesus. That pretty much sums it up. It, it's, you know, there is no segmentation. There is no differentiation. And and if there is no differentiation based on gender, then there can be no differenti- differentiation based on gender fluidity or, you know, or, or any for any type of sexuality that basically all are in Christ. And, and let me let me just add to that. What you're not saying is that we don't celebrate the difference, but we don't allow the differences in sexuality and gender and race and religion, whatever, to divide. Yeah, I mean, don't don't divide. But. I'm I'm okay with celebrating it. Listen, all sure. all of us are different. God created us all differently, and I believe that that differentiation is something to be celebrated, not just tolerated. So yeah. so it's something that you know when when we talk about uh, gay affirming, that it shouldn't be just gay tolerating. It should be something that that we actually celebrate. Or whether if if it's racial, uh, it, it should be racial celebration, diversity celebration, not just toleration. And and I think that's, you know, we're we're moving forward and and that's a good thing. But I think that to really crank this up a notch, that we need to get past just the mere toleration and actually begin to really, you know, affirm. And and to affirm is to celebrate. Yeah, for sure. Here, here, here. Yes, yes, yes. The um I after Many years of teaching like gender, sexuality, and Bible, um, I used to begin with clobber passages, and my students would be so traumatized. <laughs> so I'm so happy we're doing this affirming, um, you know, queer affirming, um, sexual orientation affirming, gender identity affirming segment. I love Galatians 28, 328. Um, that's one of my favorite. I- I'm curious whether where else we might see um, LGBTQI affirming. Um, sentiments in in scripture, and my view is that these they they pop up. We're, we may not see a continuous thread throughout scripture, but we see kind of hints, we see glimmers, and sometimes more overt um, instances. You know, so I'm kind of curious. One of the one of the passages that comes a lot come comes up a lot is David and Jonathan. This really close male friendship, kind of a ho- there's homoerotic overtones to it. So I'm kind of curious. Do we see um, do we see like a um, sexual orientation, same sex? sexual orientation, affirming um, sentiments in that story. Yeah. Well, I mean, on some of those things, I I defer to scholars because sometimes the language gets ambiguous or sometimes things that are put in Hebrew, uh, you know, they might not have a face value meaning that, but there's a meaning behind the meaning. 
Um, I, I would hope that there is because I'm sick of people who aren't cis heteronormative, like being shit on and having the Bible used as a, as a, um, justification. So I, I would love, I, I don't know if it's true, but I would love if they were, you know, homoerotic or if Jesus was gay or something like that. <laughs> but, but sometimes I just don't know because I'm not a scholar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Keith. Yeah. I just think you, um, you really can't find a better example, I don't think, in in the scriptures and certainly in the Old Testament than the David and Jonathan story, because you you not only have them expressing tenderness and and you know compassion and and affection, really strong affection for one another, you have a very strong statement that says that the love that they had for one another was greater than the love of women. That seems to be an intentionally emphatic statement about the kind of love that they had for one another. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, I love it. That's actually one of my favorite uh, examples in the scripture. And, and again, especially when there's so many um, sort of John Wayne kind of conservative Christians looking at King David as their example, you know, he's this warrior King and uh, it's like, well, yeah. And, and he also had an incredibly intense um relationship with another man and that's awesome so you know if you're going to take some of it take all of it yeah i like to think of um david when he was on his last days in his dying bed it said that they put virgins in the bed with him to kind of you know stoke the fire of life in him so to speak and it never really says whether those virgins were male or female oh are you sure I'm pretty sure <laughs> it's well and that I love so I love this story in uh, in King David. So I think it's first Second Samuel chapter one, um, but he can't get it up for the for them, and so that's how they know it's time for him not to be king anymore, because kingship was in part measured by by virility. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, that's just right. A gift, right? Yeah. <laughs> I really I hope my parents are not listening to me just say that, but I think they do uh, listen to these episodes. So sorry, mom and dad, that I. <laughs> Just I couldn't get it up about hey, I David. Think, I think Katie but, deserves a cha-ching just for saying get it up in the context of this. <laughs> when I'm not on air, y'all, so I'm very, I'm very free-flowing with my language. You know, with David and Jonathan, um, so I, I just in reference to what Matt was saying, I think it's the illusions, it it it's the ambiguity that actually makes the story very rich. And it's the subtext of the story. That makes it very rich. And that's what allows us to see some of the nuance, um, you know, in that story. And in reference to David, um, we have this, you know, this close relationship that he has with Jonathan with, you know, I think homoerotic overtones to say the least. But we also see that David has passion for women um, as well for he has many wives. He has a love affair with Mikhail. Um, he has these you know, virgins that are put in his bed when he when he can't be king anymore. And there's a letter in the LGBTQI um, acronym that's often gets really like no attention. It gets erased, and that's the B, uh, bisexuality. And so I think my, David might also be a really helpful model for evaluating for looking at um, bisexuality within scripture as well. I'm just curious what everyone you know, might think about that. Oh yeah, I, for sure. And when I and and look, I, I have my opinion. I, I do think there was some some bisexuality there, and. Um, I, I just I also want to add a little uh, thing about bisexuality is that all of this stuff is is on a spectrum too. We need to understand like these category these binary categories we put sexuality gender into just aren't they're not real. They're just concepts we come up with. So even bisexual like people can be uh, romantically bisexual or just physically bisexual and, and and then be for a romantic purpose be more what we would call straight or hetero. So. Um, there is this wide range of spectrum that I think is actually beautiful. And, and it shows that the God of like Genesis one who creates in, in, in our image and all this stuff, I think it's even more diverse and more creative and more weird and wacky and wonderful than we give credit for. And the, those categories that we have today, like LGBTQI plus, 
That's nothing that anyone in the ancient world would have understood. They had very different terminology, different ways of of thinking about their sexuality, about their gender than we do today. So we don't want to like, you know, it's not, I don't want to say like King David was gay. King David was bi, but it's that we see, you know, from our own experience, like Matt was saying, we see these overtones, we see undertones. Yeah, in scripture of the richness of the spectrum. Well, that's like what Matt said is yeah. the, this whole spectrum thing. And I loved that analogy because when you talk about the spectrum, we're talking about the rainbow, right? <laughs> and and honestly, just like how there's diversity and in, in ethnicities and races and colors and all of that, why couldn't there be diversity and fluidity um, in, in, in sexuality the same way? It, it's funny because I get this all the time. Me, I'm black. But I'm, I think I'm probably lighter complected than Matt, honestly. So it, it, there's, Matt. there's sort of a little bit of uh, racial ambiguity in me. You know, I'm black, but I'm fair skin and green eyes, right? So why not have that same sort of fluidity, that same sort of um, spectrum at, in, you know, in, in, in terms of sexuality? I, I think that's awesome. That's the best explanation of it that I've heard to date. Yeah. So, what? Okay, so J- David and Jonathan, what about Ruth and Naomi? Katie, do you have any insight into that, or Keith? Yeah. Um, well, I always used to see uh, Ruth and Naomi as uh, it confused me when people would um, sort of suge- suggest homoerotic overtones or undertones in that story. I was like, this is about a mother-in-law, daughter-in-law. I could never figure out why people use the "where you go, I will go." Your people will be my people. Your gods will be my gods at weddings, because um, it they're these two aren't married. But then when I kind of started looking at the story through queer lenses and reading what other people had written about them, I I did begin to see some, you know, like say female, female. Um, I don't know if it's attraction or that maybe there's that deep relationship, that deep love that's more than mother-in-law, daughter-in-law. And it's also complicated, I think, because Naomi is particularly ruthless with Ruth. Sorry for the pun. <laughs> Um, she's a bit ruthless with Ruth and she's very ill-tempered throughout, you know, throughout this whole story. Then we also see again at the end of the story of Ruth, when she goes and she lays at Boaz's feet, that's a euphemism for genitals, most likely. And so again, we have this, you know, kind of playful tone in the text where I think we may see Ruth as both like daughter-in-law. We may see her as, I don't want to be um, as bold as to say lover, but as in a, um, closer relationship, the mother-in-law, daughter-in-law with Naomi. And then we also see her as wife and um, as really going after Boaz too, you know, for the sake of this inheritance that they're after. So I I think it's a wonderful story. It's a complicated story. Um, So I do see some overtones there. I'm curious if anyone else does. I definitely do. Keith, Derek, yeah. Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, just, um, it it, it seems more than simply a mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship. You know, like Katie said, uh, where where you go, I go. Your gods will be my gods. That's sort of the same the the thing that a a bride would say to a husband in biblical context. Yeah, it made me okay with using that at weddings again. I was going to say, yeah, but, but it's always actually quoted in the context of a heterosexual wedding. <laughs> yeah, the irony, right? What about you, Keith? Do you see any any overtones in here, or is it too far of a stretch? Well, I mean, I don't think I see overtones. I mean, certainly not to the degree of Jonathan and David, but certainly, yeah, there is a seems to be a very, very uh, intense emotional connection um, that's probably platonic. I mean, I I would think, but um, but again, it's one of these things where maybe sometimes we do run in the risk, and I think that's kind of what you were alluding to, Katie, is. Sometimes we take our context of the way we understand certain things and we try to put that on to people, uh, you know, who lived in primitive times with different ideas of different things and that maybe they weren't thinking the same way we were or maybe they were, but they just didn't have words for it. Um, it's hard to know, really. Yeah. And I, I personally, this is just me. And so if people need the Bible to, um, you know, either to clobber or unclobber, I think I, I kind of take like a different approach. I, I don't necessarily care what some of the ins and outs of the Bible are. It's like, to me, it's like, how are you using the Bible or are you using the Bible? Um, I think it's great to see characters who, if if we're LGBTQ plus to see characters that are like us, you know, if we're black, we want black characters. If we're Italian, we want to see Italian characters that we can resonate with or something that 
where we can like kind of see ourselves. No, not Italian because those are the Romans and they're the bad guys. Um, but we want to kind of see ourselves or someone like us in the text. And, and that's all great. Um, so, but for me, it's like, kind of what's the truth behind the truth? You know, what are some of the things in the Bible that are, that are life giving, you know? So it's, it's less about like the ins and outs of whether it's Ruth and Naomi or even David, I almost called him Davithan. Um, but it's like the, the, the quotes about that there's no division in Christ or the quotes that those who love know God. Well, if a gay couple loves, then they know, then there's nothing wrong with what they're doing. Those to me are more life affirming. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah. And I, when we were talking with last week with um, Alexander Don Shia and he was telling us about his experience of coming out and uh, you know, realizing his own sexual orientation and the verses he turned to weren't necessarily David and Jonathan that I recall. They were, um, you know, more sort of the totality, like looking at the deeper, the deeper messages. Exactly. I want to say deeper, but yeah, the um, eternal. So eternal messages maybe of scripture um, and yeah, seeing the, the love that transcends time and space yeah. that's in there that was affirming for him. Yeah. I hope I'm, I hope I'm remembering him correctly there. Yeah. No, I think you are. It was, it was a great interview. Yeah. And so I would encourage anyone to go back one episode and listen to that. If you haven't yet, um, Katie, are you, are you aware of where um, some of this more affirming queer theology comes from is there like a is it a recent history or has it gone back a little further we can go back a little further we in scholarship we've been doing um queer theology queer biblical scholarship for a couple of decades now and i think it's really come into its own in the 2000s and especially in the past 10 to 15 years and um i'm happy to give sort of a little bit of an overview about that and um as I mentioned in the beginning, I'm also working on trans interpretation of scripture. So one of the things I do is I've interviewed many trans Christians, trans Jews who see themselves in scripture and in really beautiful, complex ways. Um, so that's really been impactful for me and um, very moving for me. Probably the favorite, probably one of the favorite things I've done as a scholar. So um, that's something that I'm immersed in all of the time. But, uh, you know, for for scholarship, I think a lot of this began with people's lived experiences. And this is one of the cool things about queer theology. Queer theology really begins with the like personal experience that people have and grows from there. So in the, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, especially with the AIDS crisis, um, people of faith who were retaining their faith, uh, many people left, obviously left the church at that time. Uh, but people who stayed they and didn't want to renounce their sexual orientation, they didn't want to live that kind of um, that, that with a deep wound of not being true to who they were, uh, they began to use their own experience and create theology out of that. And biblical scholars um, took note. And so the early days were really all about kind of what we did last week, like taking down those clobber passages, trying to understand them in their original context. Do they apply? You know, how did people back then understand gender? How did they understand sexuality? Um, what, what do we do now? But I think it more we needed that foundation. And, and more creatively in recent years uh, within biblical scholarship, people have started to do really cool and fun things within theology. People have started to do really and cool things and be a little more intersectional and more affirmative. Um, so people who want to go back to some kind of now classics uh, could turn to Ken Stone. He wrote Queer Commentary and the Hebrew Bible. Um, Marcella Althus-Reed, I can't say enough about. Um, she, she died a few years ago. I'm still very sad about it. Um, in 2005, she wrote a book called The Queer God. Um, so we have you know queer and God in titles of stuff uh, starting you know at least 20 years ago. The Queer Bible Commentary came out in 2006. There's a new edition that I hear is being worked on right now. Um, I want to, um, uh, in the book Bible Trouble, I want to highlight for our listeners some of the really salacious titles that are uh, in this volume. Uh, From Gender Reversal to Gender Fuck, Reading Jail Through a Lesbian Lens. Uh, Lazarus Troubles, which talks about uh, Jesus' love for Lazarus in a homoerotic way. We could also go all the way back to the man that Jesus loved, which talks about like a homoerotic relationship between Jesus and the unnamed beloved disciple in the gospel of John way back in 2003. And it just goes on from there. I think we're starting to add um, 
more uh, more lenses from people of color. We're starting to add um, uh, not only gay white men are, are writing about this stuff now. So I think really creative things are being done. The volume I'm working on, Transbiblical, is looking at how, how can we understand scripture from a transgender lens? So there's a quick rundown. I, you know, creative things are being done. So I encourage everyone to get out there and get any of those volumes that are out there and take a look for yourselves and be affirmed. Yeah, those sound great. It's it's exciting to to think that they're doing that kind of work um, on the scholarly level. It really is needed because um, the hope is that eventually some of that trickles down to the pew and that the average Christian can eventually realize that um, the stuff we've been covering in the last you know couple of episodes that there really there is no reason to use the scriptures to um, you know bludgeon people to make them feel ashamed or anything like that people do but again if you're following Jesus that's really not something you should be engaged in and there really is no reason for it as we've tried to show um, you know this isn't it's not you're, you're not there's nothing you're not broken <laughs> you're not uh, you're not screwed up and it doesn't matter if people are telling you that that is true. It's not true. Uh, and that who we are in Christ matters more than any of these other things. Um, you are beautiful. You are created the way you are. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not broken. Um, you don't need to be, uh, you don't need to pray anything away. And so it's good to know that people are doing this kind of work. Awesome. And I don't think we have to wait for a trickle down. Just we'll, uh, we'll, we'll post some of the uh, material, but yeah, get, get out there and read it. People are doing creative things. They, these scholars would love it if you would pick up their books. And most of them are pretty accessible mm. too. I mean, they're, they're kind of meant for like an undergraduate level for the most part reading. So very accessible and fun. I, I think that it's awesome that we can find a practical use for the Bible that does not berate people, that does not divide, that, that it's actually more inclusive. And I think that that's really a beautiful thing. If, if we can get to that, then uh because i'm i'm kind of at a point where um i kind of question my own personal use for the bible but when we talk about being uh creating an environment of inclusion uh and, and an environment of protection and celebration then i think that that kind of changes my it, it changes my outlook just a little bit it gives me hope yeah i i think i think unless our uh, scripture, whatever they are, uh, Bhagavad Gita, the Quran, um, the Bible, it, it, if it's bringing life to you, then great, use it. It's kind of like theology. If the theology you have brings life and brings joy and more compassion and more empathy, then fantastic. You're probably using it right, or at least close to right as you as you need to be. But if it's if it's if it's causing an entire community like the LGBTQ community to have suicide rates that are at a high level compared to, to non-LGBTQ, if it's causing ostracization and, and families to be fractured, you're using it wrong. So stop using it or learn how to use it better. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, you know, I hope listeners are hearing and um, I, I would love to know too, what, what you're, what you've been reading, you know, what, have, what have we missed here? But I hope what, what I'm communicating anyway, or what I'm desiring to communicate is that this is being done in creative pockets of of, of churches, of believers, of non-believers, of theology, of not, you know, um, ground up and top down and it's there. So it's, uh, I, I want to see people adding their voices to it and see this kind of, um, see this kind of conversation, this kind of discourse grow. Mm. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Grow through lived experience and through these conversations. Yeah. And it would be, it would be wonderful to one day reach a point where, um, no one is using the scripture to clobber anybody. <laughs> I'm looking yep. forward to that day. It, well, yeah, me too. Yeah, and if so, I'm what I'm kind of um, what I'm kind of thinking. So, listeners, if someone quotes Romans one at you, now you can quote back <laughs> uh, David and Saul. You can quote quote back Ruth and Naomi, and de- you know, develop your own kind of have a little fun with it in this way, so that like you're always with the resources. Yeah, you know, should you care to engage in people when they clobber you, which you don't have to engage, you can just walk away. No, no, no reason to participate. But if you're caught in a caught somewhere where you can, uh, someone has a listening ear, uh, you can start to have these conversations. Yeah. So um, real quick here, Katie, you had mentioned um, that some of this work is starting from lived experiences. 
is is does that mean that the scholarly world has to trickle down or is it kind of like a groundswell is it reversed from because i know it's typically scholarship like it starts in the scholarship world and then in a hundred years you know the lay folks uh get on board or learn about it but is this kind of opposite am i hearing you right yeah i think there's a i think there's a happy spot sort of sweet spot in the middle here um so when i i i'll I'll foray into a little bit of a story here, uh, a bit of a metaphysical story. So in, there's a terrible period in any grad student's life when they've turned in their dissertation but haven't defended it yet. And I was in that period. It's like this miserable three weeks where you're just imagining your committee reading your work and thinking, yeah, they're never going to pass me. Um, so I'm, I'm driving around town in the middle of this um, horrific three weeks. And they always say, you have to know, you have to think about what you're doing next. What's your next project? I was thinking, what's my, I don't have, I'm, I'm worn out. I don't have a next project. And I had this um, very cool kind of metaphysical experience where I heard, like literally heard, like almost whispered in my ear, like you're going to work on um, trans, like trans identity and scripture. And it was so clear that I turned around in my car to see if someone was in my car, didn't have a wreck. And I thought, I'm I'm not trans. I'm not the person to do this. And the kind of feeling I got was that was not the question that 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 was not what I said. I didn't ask if you were qualified to do this. I said, this is what you're going to do. You go get qualified. So uh, I began to do uh, waited about a month to see if uh, well, to see if my committee passed me. They did. And to see if this was uh, my ego or if this was, you know, something something else turned out it was something uh, something else. I felt like this was coming from God. And so I began doing research. I had a lot to learn. Um, and this is where I found the groundswell. Like a lot of lay people, like lay lay people as in non-clergy, but also non-scholars were doing really creative work around transbiblical interpretation. So I myself am reliant on those people. I'm reliant on trans people who are telling me their stories. They're gifting me with their stories. They're living their interpretations. I'm recording them and putting them in a framework with their permission um, for other people to be able to read and experience. So, I, you know, it's to me, this is the groundswell. It's when I'm, um, I'm listening to lived experiences from people and then putting them in framework and conversing with other scholars. So I see this as a two-way street all around. So a groundswell, I'm not sure, but um, ground up definitely from people's lived experiences. And as we raise up trans scholars within the academy, um, more and more of this work has the potential to get out there. Yeah, well, that's great. So that was a monologue. Sorry, guys. That's all great. No, it's it's lovely. It's great. It's great work that you're doing, and I'm sure you're you're helping facilitate uh, stories that need to be heard, and that will uh, impact people in a positive way. Yeah, coming 2022, I hope so. Yeah. Well, you'll see the skywriting when the book is out. Hey guys, it just it just dawned on me. That I've made it through an entire podcast without using any cuss words. Mm. Yeah. Right, yeah. It, it seems like we should be uh, we should be using some choice some choice words when we're talking about like gender and sex and sexual orientation. So I don't know how we've done that for the yeah. whole episode. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Well, you 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 did say uh, what did you say? You oh, said I did you in said, the title of the article. You said gender fuck, which I think from is gender like, reversal yeah. to gender fuck. Okay, All well, right. I got to be honest. I haven't heard that. I haven't heard that well, term well, before. But Katie I got one in. How about that? Katie got one in, and Matt and I didn't. Oh, well, okay. That this is a weird episode, though. It um, is, but I'm quoting. Yeah. Does it count if you're quoting? No. I mean, I, no, no. It does. Count. I want it. it I still want counts. Point. Okay. Nice. Okay. Well, I, I can ruin that here. We have a fucking website, and it's uh, heretichappyhour.com. And on that website, not only do you have all the episodes, not only do you have the, the store with the shirts and the, and the pillows. Yes, we have pillows. Um, you also get to check out our Heretic of the Week bookstore. And so we've compiled a list with the help of Ralph, our amazing producer, who never hits the heresy button when I'm talking. Um, we have a list of, of books most of the books from most of the heretics of the week and most of them are 15% off and they support the show and they support your wallet. So check out heretichappyhour.com, check out the bookstore and uh, make sure you, we also have a quiz, answer that quiz and see which heretic you are. And when you lay your lovely head on the lovely pillow from our store, you can surf Facebook 
and you can join our Facebook group, Heresy After Hours. We have over 2,000 heretics just like you asking tough questions, um, getting lots of um, tough answers that are snarky, that are supportive, that are everything in between. And we have a smaller exclusive Facebook group for people who join our Patreon community. Wow. Um, I, I thought I heard you say 200,000. Uh, I thought I, I, I did a double take. I think it's 2,000, right? I'm, I might have elevated us uh, <laughs> enthusiastically and unintentionally. 2,000. <laughs> damn. If we have 2,000, wow. Uh, I think I was trying to say, I think I was trying to decide, will I say 2,132 or just 2,000? And it came out 200,000 if I said that. Okay. Well, that's good. Anyway, uh, <laughs> um, uh, if you do love the Heretic Happy Hour and you've made it this far, so I'm going to assume you do. Uh, we really appreciate your support. We uh, we have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash Heretic Happy Hour. By the way, those of you who are listening who do support us, thank you so very, very much. It does mean a lot. It does help cover the cost of the production of the podcast, and it means we can do more of these uh, in the future. And as our way of saying thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon, um, yes, you get into the exclusive Heretic Happy Hour Facebook group, but not only that, um, you get access to all kinds of amazing things. There's different tiers where you unlock different uh, goodies and bonus things and cool stuff that we create just for you. Exclusive content. We record bonus interviews. Uh, we record bonus podcast uh, footage and conversations. So head over there to support us. And um, thank you so very, very much. And, you know, you might be a heretic if you go on iTunes and rate us five stars. But if you don't go on iTunes and rate us five stars, well, you might just be an asshole. <laughs> What's wrong with being an asshole? Nothing. I'm part of that tribe. I, I, I heard you're an unofficial asshole. No, I'm official. You're an official asshole. I'm certified. I can give lessons. Certified. Certified. Yep. Bonded and insured. Our work is guaranteed. Results not guaranteed. Speak for yourself, minor guaranteed.